This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, our dinosaur of the day is Lambiosaurus. We are finishing our SVP coverage with the last day of news and other information. And we have a bunch of other dinosaur news. And as always, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week, we would like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Lindsay Burns and Janice. And Janice just joined our Stegosaurus patron. She's been a Velociraptor or Compsognathus for a while. So thanks, Janice. Yeah, thanks. We also got to meet Janice at SVP. And thank you to all of our patrons. We really appreciate all that you do. And we hope you enjoy our podcast as much as we enjoy making it. So if you'd like to join this group of amazing people, check out our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. The final day of SVP started out with a bang. It started with Matt Barron discussing Ornithocelida, or Ornithoscelida, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And that's all about reclassifying dinosaurs from Ornithischia and Saurischia into Ornithocelida, which includes both Theropoda and Ornithischia, which is pretty weird. And then on the other hand, you've got sauropoda and some other random guys like herrerasaurids and you might remember that we interviewed matt Barron back in episode 145 so if you want to hear more about this you can jump back there but as a quick summary he presented his theory and we really enjoyed his talk on it he also in this talk went into a little bit more about how late the split might have been between Ornithocelida and Theropoda, and he, there was one point where he kind of like cajoled the audience into like, isn't this crazy? What do you think about this? And he got like a little bit of a gasp. <laughs> you could tell he was pretty happy about. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. It was a very interesting talk, and we will probably talk more about it later. There were talks by both Fernandez and Halwerda about sauropods and how Usually we think about basal sauropods being kind of the early sauropods, and you, sometimes we call them prosauropods, the bipedal ones and all sauropodomorphs. that. Sauropodomorphs. Yeah, <laughs> the early sauropodomorphs. And these talks talked about how maybe those prosauropods or bipedal sauropods or just a subset of sauropodomorphs <laughs> might have been their own group that kind of evolved separately from regular sauropods branching really early and it might not be the case that these bipedal ones slowly evolved into quadrupedal ones 
And there were a couple ideas of how that might have happened, including being separated geographically by a massive desert in the middle of the supercontinent. But there's so few remains from the Triassic, it's always really difficult to get these evolutionary changes nailed down. <laughs> there's a quarry that we haven't talked about that much that Waskow talked about in their talk while talking about sauropod dwarfism. Pretty exciting. If you get a small enough sauropod, you can have it as a pet, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Even a small sauropod is still pretty large. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I think these were still, you know, much taller than us. So there's this quarry called the Mother's Day Quarry, and it's in Montana in the Morrison Formation, which is a pretty massive formation, so it's not surprising for Montana. But the cool thing about it is why would these sauropods have been tiny? And that's the question that Waskow was looking at. And really what they think is it could have been a short-lived island, which is pretty weird to think about, especially since now it's all kind of just sticking out of the ground in the middle of the U.S. <laughs> you know, there's no water near it or anything like that. But back then there was that Western Interior Seaway that covered up parts of Montana and the surrounding area and this little spot might have been an island and then when sea level dropped a little bit maybe it went back you know connected to the rest of land and things like that and that might be how the dinosaurs got there originally when there was a land bridge sort of and then <laughs> later on the water rose up and they got stuck there and started shrinking because of island dwarfism but they also say that it might have been another stressor like lack of food or something else that caused them to shrink the other interesting thing was that they showed that the sauropods reached their full growth around the same time and age. So it was definitely a reduction in growth rate and not just that we're looking at juveniles or that they only grew for a short period of time and then for some reason stopped growing, which is a pretty good distinction to make because it demonstrates pretty well that, you know, they were growing fully to this smaller size. Another interesting talk about sauropods was by Bansell. There you go. They saved the best for last. Sauropods on the last day. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. Maybe they saved the best for last as in the end of the talks when they had all those ankylosaur talks. I don't know about that. <laughs> this talk was about a new titanosaur found in New Mexico that's nicknamed Daisy. And it gave them insight into the next stability of titanosaurs. So Daisy had these ossified tendons, which acted like leaf springs on a truck. Yeah, it's pretty weird to think about. Yeah. <laughs> and then they also looked at how strong its neck could have been. And what they did was they actually went to NASA because they had already designed these special lattices. And basically, if you think about a regular lattice, it's all regularly spaced. Like if you've seen a lattice that like grapes grow on or something like that. So with a regular lattice, it's kind of like a mesh and all the mesh sizes are exactly the same. So that would be regularly spaced because the lines themselves are kind of the lattice, not the holes in between them. But, you know, it's regularly spaced. NASA uses irregularly spaced lattices on occasion to improve efficiency of the strength versus weight. And so rather than having, you know, all the gaps the same, they'll occasionally have extra lines in a row to kind of add a different sort of strength to different parts of it. And what NASA has found is that using these irregularly spaced lattices can actually make it quite a bit stronger than a regularly spaced one would have been. So 
they combined that with their knowledge about the bones of these titanosaurs to see that a one and a half millimeter thick pneumatic wall might have been enough on a vertebrae in order to support the weight that was necessary on a titanosaur, which is really thin when you think about it. And they said that carbon fiber is stronger than bone, but the lattice that NASA designed was intended to support much more weight than the titanosaur was, so they think it's a relatively good estimation. I also want to give a shout out to Button, who did a presentation on how dinosaurs, Ceriskians, which may or may not still exist in a couple of years, <laughs> <laughs> developed herbivory multiple times. And the reason I really like this talk is he did principal component analysis, but he actually showed the components, which was pretty rare in the talks. So that was nice because if you're familiar with this statistical technique, basically you end up with these combined variables. So you have one axis will be like a fraction times the weight plus a fraction times, you know, the jaw length and all this kind of stuff. And then the other axis will be some other combination of characteristics. And most of the talks, they would say they did principal component analysis. They would put up a graph and it would say like principal component one versus principal component two. So if you're looking at the graph, you're like, I have literally no idea what this is showing me. It's just dots of one thing versus another thing. <laughs> this is one of the only talks that actually showed what the principal components were. So I really appreciated that. Maybe to people that were really familiar with their discussions, they knew what the principal components were already or something. I don't know. Most of them were pretty lost on me, but this one was better done. So I appreciated that. And it was also a cool talk because he showed how it looked like herbivory evolved quite a few times within Sarischia. So you could have a group of carnivores or omnivores and then have these random herbivores popping off <laughs> at different points. It's not the kind of thing where you'd expect to have a really long group of just herbivores. They can kind of switch back and forth a little more than you might expect. One of our favorite talks was by Ali Nabavizida. Hopefully I got that right. And it was all about dinosaur cheeks, which is awesome because no one has really published on how dinosaur cheeks might have looked before. And he will be soon. And this was kind of a precursor to that. He started by showing that dinosaurs aren't crocodiles, <laughs> which seems obvious. But since they're the only living, you know, close relative to dinosaurs that have teeth and eat meat and all that, they're commonly used as kind of a extant comparison to dinosaurs. And we talk about bite strength of T-Rex and they'll use crocodiles and things like that because it's just the best we have. But what ends up happening is that we kind of assume a little bit too much potentially about how many similarities there are. And one of those is how their muscles attach between their jaw and their head. So on crocodiles, the muscles all attach at the very back of the jaw and they don't cover much of the mouth. And that's kind of obvious if you think about an alligator opening its mouth. It's got this huge wide gape, you know, and you can see basically all the way back to its throat, <laughs> which is partly what makes it so scary because there are all those teeth along the whole thing. And you're like, wow, that could really just fit my whole body inside it. But we don't really know that dinosaurs had that same type of muscle attachment. In fact, when you look at the muscle attachment points on a dinosaur jaw, it looks like the side of the jaw kind of like stretching more towards the front of the mouth might have some good muscle attachment points similar to other older animals like dicynodonts. And since we can see that ceratopsians used palinal feeding, which kind of means moving their jaw back and forth, which 
alligators obviously don't do you know they just clamp onto something and spin around and do other crazy stuff to try to rip it into pieces <laughs> and then swallow it whole they probably needed different muscles than what alligators have so when he looked at these muscle attachment points and he kind of tried to recreate the muscles of the face of a dinosaur he ended up with muscles that overlap the sides of the mouth which is a really convenient way to see where cheeks might have been we don't really think about it that much with humans because it turns out that mammals really have extra muscles on our face just for expression. You know, if you smile, there's literally muscles that are there just to help you smile. I think there's quite a few muscles that are there to help you smile. Mm -hmm. Whereas most other animals don't have all these facial expression muscles. They rely on other things to express, you know, either vocalizations or color patterns and things like that. So dinosaurs probably didn't have you know smiling mouths or something like that but if they had these muscles going across the sides of their mouth then you know that they definitely were blocking off that mouth with their muscles and you might as well assume that there was you know skin over that and therefore you have cheeks so it's a pretty cool way to show that dinosaurs many dinosaurs specifically ceratopsians ankylosaurs and hadrosaurs probably had cheeks and it kind of helps to solve a mystery of how food wasn't just constantly falling out of their mouths like it would be if they had a crocodile style mouth, but they were chewing the way we know they did. So they didn't eat like Cookie Monster <laughs> flying out. Yeah. <laughs> Although that would be hilarious if the <laughs> food was just flying out all the time and they had a super hard time to eat. If dinosaurs were Muppets. Yeah. There was also a talk by Wilson who proposed synonymizing a couple of ceratopsians, specifically that Rubeosaurus ovatus was actually a junior synonym of Styracosaurus based on some new findings where we saw Styracosaurus with a larger variety of horn frills than we had seen before. So we might not have Rubeosaurus anymore. Or it just depends who you talk to. <laughs> That's likely going to be the case for a while for sure. And I think we've talked about the next find before, but Jeng presented on a five meter long find, which is about 15 feet, pretty big, that has six new ankylosaur individuals in it, including a large tail club. Think of it, Garrett. Oh, it's amazing. I hope they find more inside that Zool block like we were talking about. But even if they don't, this one's pretty awesome too. It's from the early Cretaceous about 100 million years ago from Hujen, China. And it's possibly a Jinyun Pelta. Don't really know specifically what genus it is yet because we got to get it out of the rock. But the coolest thing is that 100 million years ago is a pretty long time ago for a large tail club on an ankylosaur. I've talked before about how ankylosaurs, the later ones, the ankylosaurids versus the notosaurs, have those big tail clubs, but it took a while for that to evolve. The early ones just had regular tails. So 100 million years actually pushes back that big, beefy tail club weaponry earlier than we knew about it before. So that's pretty cool. There might be more ankylosaurs with tail clubs. I'm all about those tail clubs. I know. <laughs> and like I just said, <laughs> Victoria Arbor presented on Zool, and I already spoiled it, but there might be a second Zool underneath the big one, and that's not that surprising because it's one of the largest blocks, if not the largest block, ever taken out of a quarry to be prepared. I think it was, what, 30 or 35,000 pounds? Something just insane. So they found one squamosal horn so far from this potential new 
Zool underneath it. And Squamosal is kind of the back of the head, those little spikes that ankylosaurs have back there. The ones that make it look like Zool, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> and she also went into some other details about Zool, including that it had an asymmetrical tail club, which is pretty weird if you think about walking with a tail behind you, having it lopsided because it's got a much larger bulge on one side of the tail than the other would be kind of weird. And the coolest part was that there were spikes along the tail, that handle of the tail, they call it. It's kind of the stiff part, like a bat up to the club at the end. And she thinks that it's likely that lots of ankylosaurs had these spikes along the handle of the tail, but we just haven't seen them because they're not preserved as well as Zool is. Another feature that makes ankylosaurs awesome. <laughs> <laughs> In the last talk of the morning session, <laughs> you could get a feel for how much went on on Saturday, was all about Borealopelta, also known as the Notosaur, <laughs> and it was presented by Caleb Brown. And he talked all about really the scutes or the osteoderms or whatever name you want for them, which are those armor pieces down the back of the dinosaur, as well as the horns. It's something we really hadn't talked about with this find before, but it is one of the things that makes it really unique because we have both the bone as well as the keratin covering it. And that gives you a unique opportunity to kind of see how dinosaurs used keratin in concert with their bone to kind of, you know, enhance their appearance or protect the bone from damage. And he looked all at the different sizes of keratin on the different scutes. And what he found was the larger the bone got, the larger the keratin covering got. So it's not just like the keratin is 20% larger than the bone. If you have a bone that's five times as big, it might have 50% more keratin than bone. And that really makes it look a lot more impressive. A lot larger of an animal. Yeah. And he also put up a couple of cool pictures of ceratopsian horns and stegosaur plates with all that keratin sticking out of them, which was just amazing. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a talk by Smith about how the Chicago Field Museum is getting an Arctic dino exhibit in June of 2018. And we've actually, we've talked a little bit about that before. Yeah, I really want to go to that. Although I want to go to that Jurassic World thing that's there now. And I also want to see that new Titanosaur that they're going to put in. <laughs> the Field Museum. A lot Museum. of good reasons to go. Yeah, they're doing too much. <laughs> there was a talk by Fabri about bone microstructure in quote-unquote fish-eating habits in spinosaurs. This <laughs> is a pretty good title for an abstract. And he basically looked to see if... There were other features in Spinosaurus besides just those little holes on its mouth and a couple other characteristics that people point out for Spinosaurus being aquatic. So he did a principal component analysis, although it didn't have definitions, so I don't know what he was looking at. <laughs> and it showed that Spinosaurus bones are very similar to semi-aquatic animals. So he believes that Spinosaurus was probably semi-aquatic, kind of alligator-like, one might say. But how did it chew? <laughs> It probably didn't chew. That was probably a swallow hole kind of guy mm. or rip and swallow. <laughs> I guess so. There's also a presentation by Cashmore, and he looked at the completeness of the fossil record, and he was attempting to see whether natural or human biases impact what we know about dinosaurs and which ones are more complete. And what he saw was that both of them 
have a pretty big impact, not surprisingly. But the most interesting thing to me wasn't really related to that <laughs> in the talk. And he put down the different continents and how complete the average fossil is. So in Asia, they find the most complete dinosaur fossils with an average of more than 30% of the bones found, followed by North America, which was in the 20s, I think, then Africa, then South America, and finally Europe, which only found about 15% of the bones on average. He didn't have Australia and Antarctica included on his selection, so I'm not sure exactly where they would be. I guess not as many dinosaurs are found there. True, yeah. Compared to the other places anyway. Yeah. I kind of wonder too if that's about the size of the dinosaurs because, you know, we always talk about these little troodons and little guys being found in Asia, whereas South America, it's like when you have a titanosaur, how many of the bones are you going to find? So that might be why it was pretty low down the list. There's an interesting ichnology talk by Fiorillo, and he looked at these dinosaur tracks from Southwest Alaska. We don't talk about Alaska all that often. And what he and his team were aiming to do was to kind of figure out what the distribution of dinosaurs around Alaska might have been. So he figured, well, if there's a good preservation of tracks, because they knew there were a fair amount of tracks preserved, we can see if it's all one type of dinosaur or if they're all mixed in together. And then we'll kind of get an idea about where the different dinosaurs lived. So they spent a lot of time looking at these tracks and they couldn't find any ceratopsians. <laughs> But they did just find some ankylosaurs and possibly theropods, as well as tons and tons of hadrosaurs. So what they believe is that the dinosaurs probably weren't evenly distributed because you'd expect to see a few more theropods in the mix than just maybe a couple potential theropods and just like tons and tons of hadrosaurs. Although they were the cows of the Cretaceous, so maybe they were just everywhere. And on top of that, there haven't been that many bones discovered outside of hadrosaurs, but we can now tell that there were other dinosaurs there thanks to ichnology. And then he also went into part of how they collected these prints, which in Alaska is non-trivial because you have to fly in and so they used this two-part epoxy that was foldable. <laughs> it was a really flexible thing. And it was also water resistant, which they didn't really know at first, but <laughs> they were out, you know, kind of in tide pool areas when the tide went out and they would put this epoxy on top of a print so that they would have a cast of it. But then the tide came in at one point and they had to run <laughs> back inland and they have pictures of it where all you can see is the print cast sticking out of the water and then where you can't see it at all because the tide completely came over the top of it but it still worked out so it was almost like an ad for that epoxy <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool and the last talk on saturday we finally made it <laughs> there's still posters that's true was by tanaka and it was all about how dinosaurs could live in different areas depending on what type of eggs and what kind of nesting behavior they had. So what they started with was figuring out what kind of dirt or and or sand dinosaurs use, meaning chickens and other living birds, <laughs> depending on what kind of incubation they use with their eggs because not all birds brood. They don't all sit on their eggs. There are some birds that actually bury their eggs. And all the eggs have to be kept warm. So there are 
four different ways that they talk about doing it. There's brooding, which is sitting on the eggs. There's burying them with some compost that decays. There's also burying them near the, a sunny spot. So you're using solar radiation to keep them warm. And then finally, you can bury them near a geothermal area, like a hot spring or something, and that would keep them warm. And what they found was that geothermal and solar radiation burying, they usually use sand because I guess that's either what's around or that's easier to dig in or whatever reason, I guess it works better with that type of nesting. Whereas microbial decay typically uses soil, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. If you have a compost, you need some dirt there to kind of keep it going. But then brooding can use either soil or sand. Luckily, those eggs are quite a bit different since they're exposed to air and you can often find traces of the nest. So there's another way to kind of identify that one. And when they put these pieces together, what they ended up finding was that there was one type of sauropod that used sand and it was probably therefore using either geothermal or maybe solar heating in order to keep the eggs nice and toasty and incubated. <laughs> but unfortunately, it wasn't that effective except in the tropics because it looked like they were kind of limited in range. The animals that use that didn't show up near the high latitudes, you know, like up in North America and down in South America and things like that, kind of stuck in the middle. But the animals that had soil around them, which were a hadrosaur and another type of sauropod, probably used compost because we know that's what soil is good for. And it appears that they had a really large range relatively. So that basically means that they were better at nesting and it probably gave them an advantage in terms of where they could live. And then we've talked previously that brooding really is the way to go because when you're sitting on the egg, you can, like an emperor penguin, go all the way down into Antarctica and live there. You know, there's no way you could even do compost on Antarctica. That's not going to work. So the way that you raise your egg makes a big difference for these dinosaurs. And it probably affected which dinosaurs even survived the Cretaceous mass extinction because they're basically all brooders. Interesting. Yep. There's only two weeks left to sign up for one of the coolest dinosaur dig programs we've ever heard of. It's a two-week, actually 16-day, field program in the American West put together by this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, CNCC. If you've been listening to our show, you know that we're big fans of their dig programs, and it's no surprise that their first program only has three spaces left. That's not many spaces. No, and there's possibly less by the time you're hearing this. If you want to join the July 6th to July 20th dig, then make sure you sign up right now. That's the one with three spaces left. Yes. There are a few more spots left on the second dig, too, on July 22nd to August 5th, but it's also a good idea to sign up now before space runs out there. When you get to the field, you'll be taught by expert paleontologists from CNCC and experience a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. So go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all the details. And make sure you register online by May 31st, or preferably sooner. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. Sabrina and I love to find the best dinosaur museums around the world, and that requires a fair amount of traveling. A lot of times, those museums are off the beaten path. One of the most challenging museums to get to was the Mifune Dinosaur Museum in Kumamoto, Japan. The only way to get there is either by taxi or bus, 
And we very nearly got stranded because we couldn't read the bus schedule and there weren't taxis available. So it got a little bit dicey. Yes, we would have been in much better shape if we'd studied just a little more Japanese before that trip. Fortunately, we eventually managed to find our way thanks to some very kind and helpful people who work at the museum. A few more phrases, though, would have made a big difference for us. So we highly recommend preparing for your next big trip by signing up for Rosetta Stone at rosettastone.com dino. For a limited time, just for our listeners, you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership of all 25 of their language courses. The lifetime membership for all 25 courses is just $179, and normally that's $399, so it's a great deal. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. Now on to the posters from Saturday. One of the first posters we went to was by Gabriel Santos, and it was a really cool augmented reality demo, and there was also a demo inside the demo. Inside the demo, inside the demo. I think it was just one. Yeah. But yeah, little demo-ception. And (laughs) it was basically set up so that you had a phone and you could use your own phone. It was a free app and it's apparently free for the museum as well. And he is from the ALF Museum. Yeah. I think they were the only ones where we saw a demonstration of this technology, but it is open for anybody to use. And basically what it is, is you hold up the phone, kind of like in Pokemon Go or any other kind of augmented reality, that's definitely the most popular one. And then videos pop out of the pictures. And if you go over text and it has the right logo on it, it'll make the text larger and easier to read. And you can also change the language on some of them. There's also subtitles for some of the videos in various languages. And sometimes you can even change the language that's being spoken over the video. And you can even like highlight text and do all sorts of other cool interactive things with it. So it's a really neat way to add some extra depth to some of these museum displays, especially because we hear people talk about how there's kind of a a balancing act that museums play where they don't want to put too much information on signs because then people won't read it at all because it's overwhelming. But you want to have enough there so that people who are really interested in it have something more to read than just one sentence like, oh, this is a hadrosaur and they chewed their food and had gastroliths or whatever. (laughs) So when you have something like this, it kind of allows you to do both because you can have a display that has a little bit of information, but then you can hold your phone up to it and videos can start popping up and you can get all sorts of additional information if you're interested. So it's a lot like an audio tour, but much more interactive and obviously more exciting for kids and things like that. We mentioned in an earlier SVP coverage episode (laughs) that there was a 3D print which got buried and it was yellow and then it had a black coating. So once it was buried and you're excavating away from it, you could see where you made mistakes because you would chip off some of the paint and expose that yellow simulated fossil underneath it. There was also a poster by Joanna Northover and she made cast replicas of fossils and buried them out in the field. It's like the next step. <laughs> exactly. It's like another level up. Like you could imagine training people on these small kind of desk scale models and then, you know, doing the real cast replicas rather than 3D prints. And I believe this is actually at the Royal Tyrrell Museum. And I'm just going to read what they put in their abstract because I think it's a great summary. It says, quote, the current site consists of robust cast material, which is anchored in concrete and then embedded directly in the sediments and rock of the Badlands. 
The finished site is covered with a mixture of dental plaster, paint, and sediments to create the simulated matrix that participants will remove using real tools such as owls, brushes, and dental picks. The permanent nature of this dig site means the program can be offered indefinitely in the same location as long as appropriate site maintenance is completed each year. Similar techniques can be used to create indoor simulated dig sites that can be available in the case of inclement weather, allowing participants to have a meaningful, realistic dig experience, rain or shine. It's pretty awesome when you think about all the applications for this. And I also think about places like New York City, where, you know, they now have a paleontology program at the American Museum of Natural History, which is not even remotely near any dig sites. <laughs> but, you know, they could actually simulate this dig site inside their building completely realistically and, you know, practice mm -hmm. so that once they go out in the field, they know exactly what they're doing. They make less mistakes and they're probably faster about it, too. So really cool. I really like this idea. We also talked to Michael Pittman, who helped create the Dinosaur Ecosystems class for the University of Hong Kong, which is a massively open online course that we talked about and is really great. It goes really in depth into one specific area in the Gobi Desert, which is just awesome. And, you know, it really gives you a sense for exactly how paleontology works and how you date things and all that good stuff. And they put up a poster talking about how successful it was. The most interesting thing to me was that most of the students, over 60%, came from Hong Kong. And I guess that's probably because of the influence of the university on the area. Mm -hmm. But it was all in English. So I, I actually expected the U.S. to be a lot. But the U.S. only accounted for 10 to 15%. And then the rest was scattered all over the world. They had tons of people from all over the place. That's pretty cool. But it was a really great class. And they're going to launch it again next February with some new updates. And Pittman even mentioned that he was doing a couple of little interviews at the conference to splice into the course. Nice. Because that's kind of the format of it. It's a lot of discussions with paleontologists. And then it'll give you like pop-up questions to keep you on your toes. We also saw Taya Budhu's poster on the movable dinosaur museum in Mongolia. And we talked to Taya and Balor a couple times before and the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs or ISMD, which has a traveling exhibit in a big cool RV with all the dinosaurs in it. And they showed that they served 350 people in 2015 and over a thousand students in 2016. So that's pretty great. And they have much more exciting plans like we talked about before. And last, we talked to Hastings about comic books and dinosaurs. <laughs> this was like one of those really fun, more topical kind of posters. And what he did was he sampled over 100 comic books and he used kids to help him research <laughs> the poster. And basically what he was doing was looking for common issues with dinosaurs in comic books. And it mostly broke down into pronation, which is where the arms are basically. So the arms are faced like they're about to give a hug. They're faced kind of inward towards the chest. They're not faced like they're about to spring on top of something like how like a cat pouncing with the hands facing the ground. Most dinosaurs couldn't actually rotate their arms in that direction, but it's very common to see, especially T-Rex kind of depicted that way. But then there's also their teeth are often very wrong. There are sharp teeth on things like sauropods all the time. Their size is often way over-exaggerated. And then 
there was another category for like we can't even figure out what this is supposed to be because it's so unlike any real dinosaur yeah yeah it was pretty cool to see and the comics spanned from i think at least the 60s to present day yeah and there were a ton in like the recent comics saturday night was also the awards banquet and after party yep (laughs) there isn't too much news from the after party (laughs) no except for somebody in the inflatable t-rex costume dancing around yep maybe we should start bringing ours to join in the fun maybe (laughs) so at the awards banquet there were a lot of awards as one might expect at an awards banquet but we're only going to mention the ones that are related to dinosaurs for obvious reasons so first up was the Albert E. Wood Student Research Award for Collections, and that was given to Spencer Hellert for Patterns in Evolution of Flightless Birds. And I think by four collections, it meant that it wasn't something that was found out in the field. It was about using current collections to do research, which is obviously something that sometimes gets overlooked because a lot of times it's not as glamorous to do that kind of work. The Marvin and Beth Hicks Award for Preparation went to Tetsuyo Sato, and he got it for molding and casting Triassic marine fossils, but he's also worked on Triceratops and some other dinosaurs, so it's kind of an aggregate award. Then there was the Brian Patterson Memorial for Innovative Fieldwork, and that went to Adun Samathi for Theropods in Thailand. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We've talked a little bit about the new discoveries there. There was also the Lazendorf National Geographic Paleo Art Prize, which went to Mark Hallett for scientific illustration for his book, The Sauropod Dinosaurs. Yeah, and this is the first year that the Paleo Art Prize is sponsored by National Geographic, and they get all sorts of cool stuff. Like, I think there was a monetary award, and they also get featured in National Geographic. And they also act as your agent if you want them to, to sell rights to other publications for your work. It seemed really great. And I I think that applied to a few of the next awards as well. For 2D art, the award went to Sergei Krasovsky for the Dinosaurs of Burgos. Probably not how you say it because it's Spanish, but really cool illustration, mostly of sauropods. For 3D art, the award went to Esben Horn and 10 Ton Studios, which is based in Copenhagen in Denmark, for their work on archaeopteryx and creative recreations. And they also had a booth at the conference and they were showing off some of their little tiny uh, reconstructions and they had like little insects and things. And it was funny because a lot of them were scaled up. So we're used to seeing dinosaurs at like 1 to 16 scale, but these were at like 50 to (laughs) 1 scale. And they took a flower and the little hair kind of things And then they used those little fuzzy points (laughs) as like antennae and things on little insects and just did super realistic recreations. Yeah, it's really great. There was also the Taylor and Francis Award for Best Student Article in Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. And first place went to Ornella Bertrand for work on rodents. But second place went to Christopher Griffin from Virginia Tech University for his article, The Femoral Ontogeny and Longbone Histology of the Middle Triassic Dinosauriform Acillosaurus Kongwe and Implications for the Growth of Early Dinosaurs. And Chris also got the Colbert Student Poster Prize for Best Student Poster Presentation at SVP. Was that for the same thing? 
No, this had to do with mammals. Ah, who cares about mammals? Except <laughs> Says the mammal. <laughs> there is also the Joseph T. Gregory Award for Outstanding Service to the Welfare of the Society, meaning SVP, and that went to Hans Dieter Seuss from the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Yeah, apparently he's written over 150 articles about Mesozoic tetrapods, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. And the picture they used for him was from the March for Science in D.C. while it was raining. <laughs> so it was almost like, good job getting out in the weather and supporting paleontology. Then there was the Alfred Sherman Romer Prize for Outstanding Scientific Contribution in Vertebrate Paleontology by a Predoctoral Student. And that went to Aaron LeBlanc from the University of Alberta. He actually worked on mammalian teeth, but he's also worked on hadrosaurs. Probably their teeth, too, I would guess. <laughs> then they gave out an honorary membership, as they always do, which basically means that you're a lifetime member from then on for SVP, and it's for just being a really distinguished vertebrate paleontologist. And it went to Louis Jacobs, who has done a lot of work in Angola, Africa, and the dinosaur Corythoraptor. Jacob's eye is named after him. He was the one where, when we talked about the discovery of Corythoraptor, we said that like most of the people on the paper <laughs> were taught by him. So that's why they named it after him. So pretty cool. And the last award of the night was the Romer Simpson Medal for Lifetime Achievement in the Field of Vertebrate Paleontology. And that went to Phil Curry from the University of Alberta. And he very much deserved it. Yeah, he's also a member of the Royal Society of Canada and the Explorers Club. He's written over 250 articles, not to be outdone by Hans Dieter Seuss. <laughs> and he's also written many books. He's won lots of awards. They mentioned that he created that Dino 101 massive open online course that we've talked about, which has been taken over 100,000 times. That's a good one, too. Yeah. And he said that he got into paleontology by reading all about dinosaurs and that when he started, there were less than 12 jobs available in dinosaur paleontology. So he spent four years on his master's and six years on his PhD to try to learn as much and get as involved as he could before trying to find a job. And while he was working on his PhD, he started working at the Provincial Museum of Alberta, which is now known as the Royal Alberta Museum. And then shortly thereafter, he founded the Royal Tyrrell Museum. So pretty iconic in terms of Alberta paleontology and Canada paleontology as a whole, and therefore just everybody paleontology. <laughs> everybody wins. Yep. And he had one of my favorite quotes. He mentioned that he wasn't going to thank a lot of people by name because, quote, I'm not so good at remembering names anyway, unless they end in Saurus. <laughs> and I'm going to start using that because I'm also not that good at remembering names unless they end in Saurus. <laughs> <laughs> So that was it for awards. And SVP. Yep. So again, we really want to thank all of our patrons for helping us get to SVP this year. It is a place where we do a ton of learning. We probably do as much learning in that one week as we learn in three to six months from digging through papers because it's so dense and you get all of these little 15 minute gems from the experts and they outline everything you could possibly well, need to know. you can ask them questions directly. Yeah, that's true too. And also just have discussions with people so you can get immediate feedback. It's really great. 
and hopefully you enjoyed our coverage. If you're a patron at the Stegosaurus level or above, we have mailed the postcards that we picked up at the Royal Tyrrell Museum. And sorry it took so long, but they are officially in the mail, as they say. We've also posted our video coverage of SVP, which you can have access to if you're a patron at any level. Yep. And that covers a lot of the same things, but we have some pictures of a few of the things. Unfortunately, you can't take pictures at the poster sessions or do any recording at the talks, so it's a little bit limited. But Sabrina did a good job finding some Creative Commons pictures that are related. Thanks. Now moving on to regular dinosaur news, and there's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, because when you spend a few weeks talking about SVP, it starts to pile up quickly. (laughs) So the first one is in North Dakota, Denver Fowler, Liz Friedman Fowler, and four volunteers returned to the Dickinson Museum Center at the end of summer with 38 jackets of fossils. They had a busy summer because both Denver and Liz were also at SVP. (laughs) Yeah, geez. So within those fossils includes a new unnamed notosaur, the summer of notosaurs, Garrett. And ankylosaurs. And ankylosaurs. I really like it. So they found a skull, and they know that it's got spikes on its body and no tail club, which is what makes it a notosaur. And the team nicknamed the site where they found it Aquamania in Rudyard, Montana. And Denver said that he expects to be excavating at that site for years, though they do have to worry about cows. So when they leave for the season, they have to cover up the site and make it unattractive to cows so the cows don't step <laughs> stamp on it. <laughs> That's really funny, because a lot of times they talk about hiding things so that poachers don't get it, but this time it's just like... Just the cows. Keep cows from getting too curious. <laughs> <laughs> We've got more news about the dinosaurs found near Denver, Colorado. So in addition to Triceratops fossils, the team has found a T-Rex tooth. And the T-Rex may have been scavenging and come across the Triceratops. Since T-Rex lose their teeth so often, they're not expecting to find any more of that T-Rex. But on a more somber note, Mike Getty, the chief fossil preparator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, passed away on September 11th. He became ill while working on the Triceratops excavation. and He was only 50 years old and had been at the museum for four years. But he was already well-loved and was really great at recruiting and inspiring volunteers. Yeah, it's nice that he got to do one more big find, Mm -hmm. for sure. And in reading about him, it sounds like he touched many lives. There's a new dinosaur trackway that's been found at a coal mine near Chetwind, British Columbia in Canada. So geologist Dan McNeil helped discover the tracks when monitoring wells in the Brule mine, and he saw a line of indentations, and they're thought to be an ankylosaur trackway. There's at least eight deep hindfoot impressions and then smaller, shallower forelimb impressions. The age of the rock's about 115 million years old in the Gething Formation. In Fruita, Colorado, Dinosaur Journey has a new 70-million-year-old hadrosaur leg bone hand-delivered from paleontologist Josh Smith, who led a July excavation in Palisade Plunge. And he lugged the bone from his truck to a free spot on the troughs, where museum volunteers tend to dinosaur bones. On another note, Dinosaur Journey is looking to raise money to buy a 4x4 truck to haul fossils from dig sites to the museum. (laughs) (laughs) Unrelated note. (laughs) I actually found two totally separate articles about this, but it seems like maybe one led to the other. They're looking to raise $30,000, and we'll post a link so you can learn more. We've got some news about Dippy, the Diplodocus. He's making his way to Dorset on his national tour in the UK, so tickets will be available starting October 1st on the Dorset County Museum website. Tickets are free, but visitors are encouraged to get tickets as soon as possible because 
it's on a first come first serve basis. So if it gets filled up, you might not be able to see Dippy. And the Dorset County Museum is predicting the exhibit will break their box office records. There's a lot of schools that have already pre-booked. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you get one big school group through, that does a big dent on your (laughs) box office. Yep. (laughs) Next, artist Ray Troll has worked with Kirk Johnson from the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History to create a new exhibit at the Anchorage Museum in Alaska that visually tells the story of Alaska fossils, and it's called Cruising the Fossil Coastline. And there's going to be a companion book to go with it, which documents Troll and Johnson's travels along the West Coast hunting for fossils. So the idea is to let people know how science is fun and accessible, and anybody can be a citizen scientist. So the exhibit has sculptures, including one of Pachyrhinosaurus, fossils, paintings, maps, and a trilobite couch. What? <laughs> Just a couch shaped like a trilobite. I'm trying to imagine like how comfortable that would be. It seems more like a bench. It did look benchish, huh. but who knows? So the exhibit's on display from now until September 1st of 2018, so plenty of time to see Yeah. It. Only 11 months. Up in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of museums, the Chicago Field Museum 75-foot Brachiosaurus replica was wearing a giant Bears number 34 Walter Payton jersey earlier this month to commemorate the beginning of the football season. So the picture that they have of it is pretty great. The Brachiosaurus looks like it has really wide shoulders, and I can only imagine how much fabric it took to make yeah. that jersey. <laughs> And that Brachiosaurus, by the way, was first discovered by Elmer Riggs, a paleontologist at the Field Museum back in 1901. And he described Brachiosaurus in 1903. It was the largest known dinosaur at that time and was the largest known dinosaur for many decades. A Chicago newspaper at the time said that Chicago was home to, quote, the largest land animal that ever lived. (laughs) And a Boston newspaper around the same time said it was the monster of all ages. Yeah, Brachiosaurus is still definitely a contender for like the largest group of sauropods and some people kind of struggle with where to put brachiosaurids in terms of like titanosaurs versus other sauropods Mm -hmm. because it is really big (laughs) big enough that you know compared to a human you wouldn't really notice too much of a difference in real life yeah yeah even though i'm a packers fan i still kind of like that it's pretty fun i'm glad (laughs) they did that yeah Next, thanks to Kevin, who shared this one with us via Facebook. So researchers at Ohio University have discovered between five to ten new species of animals this year. And the post Athens shares how they're so successful. So tips include going out into the field. Paleontologist Patrick O'Connor has gone to Tanzania, Madagascar, and Antarctica. And they also work with others out in the field. And they look at and dissect modern relatives and compare modern skeletons to fossils they found. And they look for gaps in knowledge about certain time periods or geographical locations. Cool. Got to be in it to win it. Exactly. Get out there. (laughs) Next, thanks to Brendan, who shared this one with us via Facebook. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science is looking for volunteers for their prehistoric journey exhibit. And the exhibit shows the beginning of Earth all the way to the modern world. And they have these exploration stations. So the museum's looking for people over 14 years old who can work for a minimum of 20 shifts in a year. And we'll post a link so you can learn more details. If you live near there, could be a good opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Another cool opportunity is the PLOS Paleo community. Actually, they've got a few opportunities. So they're currently looking for a freelance paleo science writer to write press releases and research news stories, as well as someone in the Washington, D.C. area who can help represent the community on October 11th for National Fossil Day. And we'll post a link so you can read more on those details. From now until November 5th, 
Fundación para el Estudio de los Dinosaurios en Castile y León is accepting illustrations for its international contest of dinosaur scientific illustrations and anyone can participate. This is pretty cool. So submissions, they have to be original and unpublished and you have to include the name of the species, the ecosystem or the site and the title. Artists can submit as many works as they want, either via snail mail or email. And paleo illustrators and paleontologists will decide the winner on November 20th, and all artwork accepted will be put on exhibit. There's three prizes, and first place is 650 euros, and we'll post a link in case you're interested. Yeah, I'm excited to see who wins. There's so much good paleo art. Mm-hmm. Next, Victoria Arbor wrote about the prehistoric park at the Calgary Zoo as an example of how zoos incorporate evolution into their exhibits, and that's actually something I hadn't thought about before. Yeah, that's true. Pretty cool. It does seem obvious after they mention it, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the Calgary Zoo has had dinosaurs since the 1930s, when prehistoric park was known as St. George's Island Natural History Park, and they had these concrete dinosaur sculptures, but most of those sculptures are no longer around. In the 1980s, a new area was constructed for a prehistoric park, and they put in models which were replicas from the Sinclair World of Dinosaurs exhibit from the 1964 World's Fair. So dinosaurs include a T-Rex, Ankylosaurus, Edmontosaurus, and Centrosaurus. And there's also signs that explain some dinosaur facts and help link evolution, dinosaurs, and animals at the zoo. According to Victoria, though, prehistoric park isn't as effective as Elephant Odyssey at the San Diego Zoo. I actually haven't seen either, so I don't know. But it's still cool and popular with visitors. Yeah, I've been to the San Diego Zoo, but there's so much there. I don't remember that part. Could be new, too. Speaking of zoos, though, the Phoenix Zoo in Arizona will soon have dinosaurs in the desert. This exhibit is coming in early October, and visitors will be able to see 23 dinosaurs in a self-guided walk that will take about 25 to 30 minutes to do. Zoo members will be able to see the exhibit between October 3rd and 5th, and then it's going to be open to the general public starting October 6th. The exhibit costs $5. The dinosaurs there are going to be animatronic, and visitors will also be able to sift through a fossil dig. Dinosaurs in the exhibit are painted like Arizona desert animals, which is pretty cool. So that includes Carnotaurus, painted like a jaguar, Edmontonia, painted like a Gila monster, Coelophysis, painted like Gamble's quail, Diabloceratops, painted like a desert spiny lizard, and City Potty, painted like a Chiricahua leopard frog. And these designs came from over a thousand entries, and there's going to be two grand prize winners. That's a pretty cool way to get the public involved. Yeah, I think I only know what a jaguar and a Gila monster look like. I have no idea what a Gamble's quail, a desert spiny lizard, or a Chiricahua leopard frog <laughs> looks like to visit the phoenix zoo i guess so I, I i assume that the leopard frog looks like a leopard but if anyone visits please send us pictures yeah for sure in plant city florida dinosaur world's 40 foot tall fiberglass t-rex continued standing tall even after hurricane irma hit so that's pretty awesome the t-rex has been there since 1998 and Dinosaur World, they had some flooding and at least one power line went down as well as broken fences. But all their 150 plus dinosaurs survived the storm and were intact. And they were able to reopen their park pretty quickly within days after the storm. Cool. I think if they were animatronic, it might have been a different story. Could be. Yeah. I think they've had trouble with other storms in the past. 
In Oklahoma, a mother and her 18-month-old son had a, a pretty touching moment with an older gentleman. So the son, whose name Owen, is apparently very friendly and likes to talk to everybody. And the mother, Alyssa, and Owen were killing time in a Target. And Owen was playing with three dinosaur stuffed animals in his cart. And then he said hi to this older man as the man passed by. And the man stopped and started playing with the dinosaurs with Owen. And then he gave Owen $20 and told Alyssa with tears in his eyes, Quote, I just lost my two-year-old grandson last week. You take this money and buy this boy all three dinosaurs. And then he walked away. So Alyssa posted about the encounter on Facebook to share how there's good in this world. So I I consider that another kind of heartfelt dinosaur story and how that brings people together. It's bittersweet, but still touching. Next, Bill Cook, a retired contractor who now repairs instruments, has created a 7-foot-tall, 18-foot-long dinosaur made out of instruments. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So he used 45 broken instruments, mostly tubas and saxophones. And he's using the sculpture to promote a local school's marching band concert. He's actually one of the directors for the marching band. And the theme this year is Jurassic Park and Star Wars. Hmm. The dinosaur is named Brassy. It took him a week to build. It only took a week. Wow. Yeah. Even being seven feet tall and 18 foot long. That must have taken a lot of tubas and saxophones too. 45 instruments. I wonder how he had that many laying around. Maybe they're just like old and kind of, you know, rusted or something. Could be. Yeah. He said they were all broken. Yeah. Next, Lori Farrell, mother of a kindergartner named Molly, dressed up in an inflatable T-Rex costume to send her kid off on her first day of school. And she said she did it to entertain her daughter and also help her curb her own emotions. So Marley apparently loves dinosaurs, and having her mom in the costume helped her get over her nervousness on the first day of school. And there's a photo that shows Lori in costume holding her daughter's hand. It's pretty cute. In Canada, somebody else donned the inflatable T-Rex costume and went flyboarding over a lake. There's a video where the T-Rex is hovering over the lake and then eventually falls in and has to doggy paddle back to the shore. It's pretty entertaining. In other news, Magic the Gathering's next set is going to feature dinosaurs. So Nerdist revealed three cards from the set, which includes a Triceratops with a spiky tail, a Brontodon, and Looming Altasaur. And in the set, the dinosaurs fight pirates, so pretty exciting. (laughs) Daily Dot reported on a dinosaur crust cutter. It's called the Dino Bite Sandwich Crust Cutter, and it'll turn your sandwiches into mini sauropods. The cutter costs about $7 on Amazon, but I think they make all sandwiches better. Yeah, it looked like it used the sandwich pretty effectively, too, because it's kind of like two interlocking sauropods, so they make up a square. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of just like triangular cut, but slightly dinosaur-shaped. And next, Animal Planet is selling a Triceratops dog costume. This might be the best dog costume I've seen. It costs... $8.50 on Amazon and basically gives your dog a brownish purplish frill complete with three (laughs) horns and it's got a velcro strap that attaches under the dog's chin and all the dogs in this costume that I saw in pictures look pretty okay with the headdress. (laughs) Some of them are looking at the camera like what are you doing to me but they appear to be sitting pretty still so they must have been calm. Was that from the advertisement? No that was was an article I found. Oh okay. I was just thinking, would people take a picture of a dog trying to knock it off its head? Because any dog I've had would not tolerate that. (laughs) Yeah. I think it depends on the dog, though. Yeah. Unless it's impossible for them to knock off like that cone, then they just like submit defeat. No. (laughs) 
And thanks to Bradley C. for sending us an email to let us know that the California state dinosaur is official, so it's now Augustinolophus, which is kind of a mouthful. <laughs> but at least we have a state dinosaur now, and it is fully Californian because apparently it hasn't been found anywhere else. Nice. And it's a hadrosaur, in case anybody doesn't know. A cow of the Cretaceous. Yep. <laughs> and it's on display, if you're interested in seeing it, at the L.A. Natural History Museum in a weird upstairs corner that is easy to miss. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs like Saturnalia, a small long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos. Yes, that Thanos, named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. Plus, some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive, there's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, sauge, or cheers. Join now at rosettastone.com dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Lambiosaurus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon and Dinosaur4602 via YouTube. So thanks. 
It was a hadrosaurid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now North America, and the name means lamb's lizard. It's named in honor of Lawrence Lamb. It was described in 1923 by William Parks, but Lawrence Lamb actually spent 20 years studying the first material. Multiple species have been named from Alberta, Canada, Montana, U.S., and Baja, California, Mexico, but now only two Canadian species are considered valid. As you might expect, it does have a long history, as many of the dinosaurs who were named early on do. Yep. At one point, there were seven species of Lambiosaurus. Some of them have been determined to be different sexes of already named Hadrosaur genera. Weird. I'm skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Lawrence Lamb described the first Lambiosaurus fossils in 1902, the postcranial skeletons with no skull. But he assigned them to Trachodon marginatus, but Trachodon is now a dubious genus. Then in 1914, he described two new skulls that he thought should be Trachodon marginatus, but since Trachodon was dubious, he created a new genus, Stephanosaurus. The skulls came from around the same area as the Trachodon marginatus fossils, so it means they could have all been the same type of dinosaur, but it's not for certain. Because of this, in 1923, William Parks redescribed the Stephanosaurus skulls as Lambiosaurus and named them in honor of Lawrence Lamb, who had died in 1919. A number of fossils that were originally classified as other dinosaurs have now been determined to be Lambiosaurus. In 1902, Henry Fairfield Osborne named Didanodon altidens, based on a partial left jaw, and Lawrence Lamb reclassified it as Trachodon altidens. In 1917, Lawrence Lamb named a new dinosaur Chineosaurus, which became the type genus of the group Chineosaurinae, a group of dinosaurs that looked like hadrosaurs but were smaller. In 1920, William Diller Matthew named a new dinosaur Prochineosaurus based on a photograph of a skeleton. Later, William Parks described Tetragonosaurus from fossils found in Dinosaur Park formation and included fossils from Prochineosaurus into the type species Tetragonosaurus praeceps. Two other species were added to Tetragonosaurus, Erectofrons and Cranibrevis. Then in 1942, Richard Swan Lull and Nelda Wright did a study about all of these dinosaurs and said that all Tetragonosaurus should be Prochineosaurus and that Trachodon altidens could also be Tetragonosaurus. Lull got approval from the ICZN to use the name Tetragonosaurus instead of Prochineosaurus. And the ICZN is the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature, which is the body that basically says whether or not things are named correctly. (laughs) Yep. It's always interesting to me when they say, yes, this name can be the official name even when it was named after. But anyway. Charles Marsh named a genus Hadrosaurus possidens based on a partial maxilla and squamosal from the Judith River Formation in Montana. But in 1964, John Ostrom said that that was probably a Lambiosaurus. Only postcranial remains, so no skull, have been found of Lambiosaurus possidens, so it's not clear if it is actually Lambiosaurus. In 1975, Peter Dodson found that Chineosaurinae, which included Prochineosaurus, were actually juveniles of larger hadrosaurs, and that the type specimen of Prochineosaurus was actually a juvenile Lambiosaurus, and the others were juvenile Corythosaurus. He found this by measuring dozens of skulls and interpreted the differences as being juvenile or male or female. Interestingly, Prochineosaurus was named before Lambiosaurus, and usually the older name is the one that sticks, but not in this case. Yeah, sometimes that has to do with having not enough remains or not describing it perfectly. Mm-hmm. 
Bill Morris named Lambiosaurus laticatus with a question mark in the <laughs> 1970s. And these were Lambiosaurine remains in Baja, California, but no complete crest was found. So it's not known for sure if it's a Lambiosaurus. He based it on the parts of the skull that were found. In 2012, it was assigned to a new genus, Magnapolia. So now that leaves us with two valid species, Lambiosaurus lami, the type species, and Lambiosaurus magnacristatus. Lambiosaurus lami and Lambiosaurus magnacristatus were from the dinosaur park formation, though they lived at slightly different times. They're part of the family Lambiosaurinae, the subfamily of hadrosaurids with hollow crests. They're closely related to Corythosaurus, Hippocrisaurus, and Allorotitan. They're all very similar, but they have slightly different crests. The Lambiosaurus crest was shifted forward, and hollow nasal passages were in the front of the crest and stacked vertically. The crest is also a little bit different in each species of Lambiosaurus. Lambiosaurus lami had a crest that was hatchet-like in shape in adults, and shorter and more rounded in specimens thought to be females. This hatchet blade is in the front of the eyes, and they had two sections. There's an upper portion of a thin, bony coxcomb that developed right before adulthood, and a lower portion that had hollow spaces that were part of the nasal passages. They also had a handle, quote-unquote, that was a solid, bony rod that went over the back of the skull. In Lambiosaurus magnacristatus, this handle was smaller and the blade was larger, though this crest is damaged in the most complete specimen, and so only the front half is left. There's a few theories about what this crest was used for. One is that it was like a snorkel or air chamber, so Lambiosaurus could keep its head underwater for long periods of time, but that would mean it was often in water and doesn't explain why Lambiosaurus crests look different from other Lambiosaurines. Another is that it stored salt glands, but salt glands are usually in animals that live in saltwater ecosystems, though areas where Lambiosaurus had been found were near the western interior sea, which was saltwater. And in 1979, Jack Horner described what looks like a Lambiosaurus magnacristatus jaw from marine sediment, but this doesn't explain why other hadrosaurs were in different ecosystems, not just saltwater. And it doesn't explain why the crest looks different between the Lambiosaurus species. Those are some pretty far out there mm-hmm. <laughs> theories. <laughs> the snorkel one is just I think wackadoo. That, that was one of the first. Yeah, that sounds. Like, it reminds me of the sauropods where it's like they needed long necks so they could stand on the bottom of the lake and yeah. get their head out of the water. <laughs> Another theory is that the crests were used for display so that they could tell their species apart and as a sign of maturity, since adults had more developed crests. Also, specimens scientists think are females have more rounded crests than males. That always seems like circular logic to me, though, because they're arguing that they are females based on the shape of the crests. And then they point out like, oh, look at these difference in the crests. We have these two groups. But they could just be different species. <laughs> could be. Because <laughs> with birds, you see that kind of thing all the time, like a slight difference in coloration and they're different species. Yeah. I don't know what other factors make them think they're females versus males. Yeah, though, that's so. true. Probably most popular theory now, though, is that the crest may have been used to create sounds. Yeah, that's a cool one. Yeah. And we've even seen a recreation of the sound of Parasaurolophus based on the shape and size of its nasal cavity. Yeah. Although there could have been soft tissue in there, so it's a little guessy. It's always guessy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
So Dodson suggested that Lambisaurus had sexual dimorphism based on their crests. However, David Evans and Robert Rees re-examined the skulls Dodson had looked at and suggested that it was too small of a sample size and there was an incomplete fossil for Lambiosaurus magnacristatus. Right on. So <laughs> Dodson had looked at only two individuals of Lambiosaurus magnacristatus mm. and he found that one of them had a larger crest and then based on that suggested there was sexual dimorphism. But as I said, one of those crests was damaged. Mm-hmm. Which is what Evans and Reese found, was that the female crest was broken, and that's the only reason it seems smaller. And if it weren't broken, they would have looked the same. So there yeah. you go, Garrett. <laughs> yeah, statistical power for sexual dimorphism is really hard to get. And I think there was actually a talk, I believe at last year's SVP, where they pointed out that we don't have enough samples of any dinosaur to see sexual dimorphism. And that includes things that we find a ton of, like some of the hadrosaurs where we have like 50 or 60 samples. Mm -hmm. We still can't tell. So there's other paleontologists, such as James Hobson, who suggested that Lambiosaurus lami were females and Lambiosaurus magnacristatus were males, but these species were not found at the same stratigraphic level. Lambiosaurus was both bipedal and quadrupedal. It had four digits on each hand, and the second, third, and fourth digits were together and bore hooves so they could go on all fours for support if they wanted. That's the craziest thing to me, those hands that are like also hooved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Multi-use. Yeah. So the last digit on the hand was free, and that could be used to help with grip or balance. That's the crazy thing to me. It's like a thumb sort of with uh, hooved fingers. (laughs) (laughs) They had three digits on each foot. Because it was both bipedal and quadrupedal, Lambiosaurus could eat low to moderately high-growing vegetation. It had a narrow front of the mouth, which may mean it was a picky eater. It also had batteries at the back of the mouth with over 100 teeth to grind plant matter. Lambiosaurus is about 31 feet or 9.4 meters long. Some scale impressions have been found. They found these polygonal scutes on the neck, torso, and tail on Lambiosaurus lami, and on the neck, forelimb, and foot on Lambiosaurus magnacristatus. Lambiosaurus had a long, stiff tail with ossified tendons and large eye sockets and sclerotic rings, which means it probably had good vision and was diurnal. It also had a strong sense of hearing. This is based on Corythosaurus, a close relative having slender stapes, which are reptilian ear bones, and large space for an eardrum. Lambiosaurus lived near rivers and floodplains with wet and dry seasons, and other animals that lived around the same time and place include Corythosaurus, though Corythosaurus may have lived earlier than Lambiosaurus, and Lambiosaurus actually may have even replaced Corythosaurus. But other animals included Chasmosaurus and Centrosaurus, Ceratopsians. The OG Ceratopsians that <laughs> named the two groups. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Edmontonia, a notosaur. Euoplocephalus and Ankylosaur, as well as the Tyrannosaurus, Albertosaurus, and Displetosaurus. Quite the variety. Yeah, and some well-known guys, too. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact of the day is that Pangaea, also known as the seventh supercontinent in Earth's history, hmm. would have caused very different weather across the continents than we see today. And I was thinking about this because right now, Brazil is all beachy and lovely to visit, I hear. But at the time of Pangaea, you can see it pretty easily when you look at the map, South America was nested inside that western part of Africa. So the northern part of Brazil, where you get, you know, more of the Amazon rainforest kind of situation, was connected to Côte d'Ivoire, or the Ivory Coast, and over to Ghana. And then on the east side, you've got a connection to Nigeria, and then kind of by Rio, I think would be about where Angola is. 
on the west side of Africa. And so that obviously also means that Africa on its western coast didn't have any beaches either. And then Argentina and Uruguay were up against Namibia and South Africa, as well as a little bit of Antarctica, which was kind of tucked in below Africa. (laughs) And then the other part is that the curve on the east side of North America that goes from Florida up to Newfoundland would have blocked off the rest of West Africa. So you kind of have South America tucked into the bottom part of Africa and North America blocking off the top of Western Africa. And so nobody gets beaches, like none of the beaches anybody likes. And then there was no Caribbean Sea, because if you think about it, like the Caribbean should have been in the mix somewhere. But the Caribbean Sea didn't form until like 160 to 180 million years ago. So in the early Triassic, when there was still Pangaea, there were like no beaches anywhere in that whole area. And that would have led to this large land mass that basically would have made the weather much more erratic, kind of like the Midwest and the U.S., which gets those hot and cold fronts meeting and you get tornadoes all the time and these thunderstorms that only last a few minutes and lots of crazy weather. Whereas when you're closer to the coast, you have the big ocean there that stabilizes things and keeps weather a little more consistent. There also might have been some huge deserts in Pangaea and... I kind of wonder if it would have made tornadoes any bigger or more powerful and if they would have been strong enough to pick up dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) Because we all know that they can pick up cows because of the movie Twister. But... (laughs) A scientifically accurate movie. Well, they could pick up cars, so you figure they could probably pick up a cow, but maybe not a dinosaur. I don't know. And then I wonder if dinosaurs would have had an instinct to avoid some of these crazy like hurricanes and tornadoes because birds are well known for kind of detecting these pressure changes and hiding and roosting and things like that. There was this great video when Hurricane Harvey was headed towards Texas where a hawk just like flew into a guy's car and wouldn't leave. And the guy was like, get out of my car, Hawk. And I was like, no, I'm, uh, there's something coming. I'm just going to hang out in this, <laughs> in this car. Smart bird. And the guy took it into his house and just like kept it inside until the hurricane was done. And then like an animal control group came to rehab the hawk and let it back out into the wild. But I wonder if those instincts came from like crazy weather in Pangaea <laughs> or something. That would be really cool. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any episodes. You can subscribe on iTunes and just about any other podcasting platform by clicking on the subscribe link. Yeah, it really helps us with our metrics. And you don't miss anything, which is a win-win. Win, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And if you like listening to us, you can also join our growing community on Patreon at patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented 
They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.